2: Welcome to episode 108 of the Highly Relevant Podcast, a U.S. Latino show where I interview the people and discuss the moments that are shaping our American and Latino pop culture. I am your host, Jack Rico, and if this is your first time listening, thanks for discovering us. All right, guys, today is the reason why I created this podcast. It's to be able to have the freedom to talk about U.S. Latino stories like... This week's cancellation of One Day at a Time by Netflix. It's caused an uproar amongst U.S. Latinos and Americans alike. Uh, and it's mostly been driven by the fans and the press. I mean, people are literally pissed off at this cancellation. They've gone at Netflix for being a bunch of hypocrites, for saying they support... Uh, diversity and inclusion, but then do things like this. So um, I had a chance to talk to Marielena Fernandez. She's the TV reporter for New York Magazine and Vulture.com, and she joins me to discuss how this cancellation might actually detour progress that's been made for U.S. Latino TV shows. Is our culture slowly being deleted? Well, I talked to her about it. Then I talked to Concepcion De Leon. She's the New York Times writer who pitched and created their first ever X column called El Space. How did it come to be? Did she encounter any resistance from editors? What's been the feedback so far? We have an interesting conversation on identity, writing, and how she broke into the business. But first... Let's talk one day at a time.
0: Since Sid identifies as non-binary, I wanna call them by a term that's more acceptable and inclusive. Oh, you
2: know what I always thought was so cute? Better
0: half. I don't wanna call Sid half a person. (gasps) What if I tell people you're my better (laughs) whole? You're not saying
2: that. I have on the phone right now, Marielena Fernandez. She's the TV reporter for New York Magazine and Vulture.com. She's out of L.A. right now, and just like her and myself, we're very, very sad at the fact that One Day at a Time has been canceled by Netflix, and I believe that it started trending almost immediately Um, online. Isn't that crazy?
3: It is crazy. You know, for the last few weeks, there's been a Save One Day at a Time campaign, you know, that the writers and producers of the show started, and all of its big fans, you know, people like lin Miranda and other famous people have been, like, pushing for uh, the renewal, and today we woke up to the sad news that Netflix decided to cancel it, but the campaign moves on because Sony, who produces the show... Has vowed to try to sell it to another uh, network. And we've seen in the recent past that shows have been saved. You know, Brooklyn Nine-Nine had a very mm-hmm. passionate fan base and people rallied and NBC decided to pick it up. And so, you know, fingers crossed, but so far today has been a sad, sad day. You know, yeah, we're like read-
2: mourning. We're like in mourning. It's like a funeral mm-hmm. out there.
3: Yes, when you read Rita Moreno's tweets about grieving her character and you read Norman Lear's statement about being heartbroken, you know, these are people that are legends in our culture, right? And Mm -hmm. you, and they're elderly and you, you see the impact that it's having on them. How can it not have impact on you? You know, as, as Latinos in the United States, we don't have much representation on television in the form of a show like one day at a time, you know, every once in a while we have a character here or there. Um, on a TV series, but shows that center around our family life and our cultures are rare. And, you know, I'm Cuban-American and the show is based on a Cuban-American family. And I've never seen that before, you know, other than Que Pasa USA back in the day. Yeah, I was just going to say guests. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've never seen this on a U.S., um, you know, English language show. And, you You know, not that that's the only reason that the show is worthy, because the show is very funny and emotional and has many topics that many families can relate to in terms of, you know, a gay child or uh, a parent in the military who's suffering from PTSD or taking Mm -hmm. care of a parent. You know, there's many things that are across the board relatable, but you know, the bonus for you and me is that we see ourselves, you know, in, in little details. It's not even, you know, that they're spending the entire half hour screaming, I'm Cuban. It's just, <laughs> you see, you see right. the cafetera on the stove and you see them eating pastelitos or arguing about Che Guevara or, um, you know, and those are conversations I've never heard of um, and wish I had had when I was growing up. Um, so that's why I think, the latinx community in particular is really really sad today
2: i thought it was the latinx community exclusively but the biggest uh sort of voices that have been very vocal about this have been caucasian uh, journalists yeah uh, from variety yeah. from uh tv line, i mean from almost everywhere they, they they almost seem to be more outraged than than we
3: Yeah. Yeah. Well, the show is a total media darling. I mean, it's been on every top 10 list at the end of the year since it came on Netflix. And yeah, I didn't mean to say that we're the only ones in mourning. I'm just saying, you know, why we specifically would be. But yes, the show has been very successful in terms of um,
2: reaching Other audiences, because, you know, somebody on on Twitter uh, recently said that, yeah, we finally had a show that was made by Latinos for Latinos. And I'm like, you know what, that should be tweaked. This is a show made by Latinos for Mm -hmm. everyone. And that has been sort of the master template of how to create... Uh, Latino stories, but that can be digestible for anyone of any background. And and I think that that's one of the reasons that the outrage has been so intense is because, uh, as you said before, Rotten Tomatoes had it at 100% for the last three seasons. Everybody and anybody who saw it was talking about how incredible the writing was, how incredibly touching and emotional and connected with so many people. And then you have to really ask yourself whether Netflix... if This is the hypocrisy of Netflix because in the statement that they made on Twitter, and let me just quote it really quick so everybody understands the context here. And to anyone who felt seen or represented possibly for the first time by one day at a time, please... Don't take this as an indication your story is not important. The outpouring for uh, the outpouring of love for this show is a firm reminder to us that we must continue finding ways to tell these stories. And the first thing I'm like thinking about is you condescending guys. How are you saying this and canceling it all at the same time?
3: That's a total slap in the face. Um and if I remember correctly, one of the tweets also mentioned low ratings, which, you know, they're supposed to be the platform that doesn't care about ratings.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, so why um, do you think this show was really canceled?
3: What I have heard behind the scenes is that it didn't perform well internationally. As you know, Netflix is in 190 countries. It's mm. not it's not just measuring U.S. audience um and so what I've heard is that internationally it hasn't performed, and they've been concerned about that since you know the between the second season and third season renewal, which also took very long and seemed like it was going to be canceled last year. Right. And then they decided to give it an extra go. Um, but you know, there's other ways to look at that too. You know, they have uh, an extraordinary, extraordinary amount of money for programming. I mean, every week we're seeing new shows on Netflix. And sometimes when shows are prestigious and do very well in terms of media attention and bring something different to the table, networks will opt to keep them even if they are not performing as well as they would like them to, you know, in terms of viewership, because they bring a certain cachet and a certain prestige and right. something special to the table. And so, you know, you're seeing a lot of critics bringing that up. You know, there were a lot of other reasons, many more important reasons to keep it. So that, I think, is why everyone is so sore. Right. I mean, that's why you're seeing everybody so upset today.
2: Now, I have to ask these questions because these are the questions that immediately went through my mind. And I'm curious to knowing what your thoughts on it are. Would One Day at a Time have continued for another season? if the cast was white or if the cast was black?
3: I would tend to think so. You know, I would tend to think that at the very least, there would have been a likelihood of them saying, you're getting six more episodes to finish your story. Right. You know, the fact that they just decided to cancel it, and, you know, I don't want to spoil it, so I'm not going to say what it is, but the end of season three is a cliffhanger. You know, for them not to get to tell that story and end it and say goodbye to these characters after they've been received as well as they have, you know, it really doesn't make any sense. There, there's been many, many instances where a network says, you know, we don't think we can support this show anymore beyond three or four more episodes so that you can close it out. And that at least makes the fans happy. The producers get to tell the story they wanted to tell. You know, yeah, there's get closure.
0: To-
3: yeah, yeah. It's, it's really... It's really hard, you know, when Lydia is you-know-where at the end of season three and we don't know what happened. Oh,
2: absolutely. You know, uh, like, I also keep on asking questions like, was the show properly promoted by Netflix? Did Why didn't it get the Roma treatment?
3: That is, you know, that is another huge and very important uh, point. You don't see the one-day-at-a-time billboards on Sunset Boulevard Mm-mm. in Los
0: Angeles. <laughs> right.
3: Uh, and I've talked to many... Um, of the show uh, of the actors representatives who say it's very hard to get their actors on talk shows. Just, this was the first,
2: wow, season Rita, really?
3: this was the first season that a talk show took Rita Moreno and Justina Machado. And like, they just couldn't, I mean that a talk show would not want Rita Moreno is like, it's <laughs> it's bonkers me. right but but maybe it's right. rita
2: moreno under the context of a hispanic u.s sitcom
3: exactly exactly
2: because once uh west side story with steven spielberg comes out because exactly. rita moreno's gonna, i'm sure everyone's gonna want rita moreno to talk about west side story
3: that's exactly the the thing you know the promotion and marketing of the show hasn't been there so there you know some of some of the outlets Uh, on the national level aren't that aware of it you know the people that are booking the talk shows aren't aware of like the significance of the show and they're just like oh that's just a little show on netflix it doesn't matter that it's rena moreno you know if you don't promote it and you don't market it and you know the producers have done yeoman's work on social media you know rallying people and and establishing relationships with fans and you know they had a a food truck in L.A. for the premiere where they were giving out Cuban food and, you know, saying hi to fans because the Netflix just wouldn't do that for
2: them. What happens now with U.S. Latino stories moving forward? And I'm not just talking about Netflix, because I think Netflix, this was a complicated thing for them. I mean, this was like its own sort of... A unicorn that they didn't exactly know what to do. It was a hybrid of so many different Mm -hmm. things coalesced in in one show that Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sure even metrics had nothing to do with it. This was far bigger than what data can tell you. Um, I know that they double down on Latin American stories in Spanish language. I think that's much perhaps probably easier to sell internationally than one day at a time in English with Hispanics, where maybe Latin Americans can't connect with that American experience, right? Or even the Caribbean experience from Cuba. Uh, (laughs) If you live, for example, in Argentina, right? right? So the question I think for me is, All the cable channels, all the streaming services, all the broadcast networks in the United States, they look at this and are they like, oh my God, that has, tiene la plaga encima. You know, it got the cooties right right now. Uh, Everybody (laughs) stay away from U.S. Latino stories. They don't work. And look at the outrage by everybody. Do we want to tackle something like that? What do you think programmers today are thinking about U.S. Latino stories? Is this a bad moment for us moving forward?
3: You know, it, it definitely doesn't help our cause. You know, one of the reasons it stands out is because it doesn't exist, right? And it doesn't exist because for the most part, U.S. programmers don't know what to do with us. Because even in the U.S. Latino population, we have so many differences, right? We have mm-hmm. regional differences. We have cultural differences between like Cuban and Mexican and Puerto Rican. And, and they want to treat us as, a, as one group but we're not all going to respond the same way, right? Oh, um,
2: marketers hate they're, us.
3: <laughs> they're like, <laughs> I don't
2: know what to do with you.
3: <laughs> yeah. So, you know, for the for, by and large, they just have ignored us, you know. And, and for, I think, in the last year or so, you're seeing that Latinx Hollywood is trying to unite more. You know, they've been inspired by what black Hollywood has been able to do.
2: And uh, Asian and Hollywood, the, too. Yeah.
3: Yeah in terms of breaking out, you know, in film and TV. And what they've learned is that they have to create their own stories. You know, as you know, one of the co-creators of One Day at a Time is Gloria Calderon-Kellett, and the show could not exist without her.
0: Absolutely. And Mike Royce, right.
3: And so, you know, you're seeing that more of them are becoming, you know, actors are becoming directors and producers because, you know, people like America Ferrera and Gina Rodriguez Because they know that's the way to get more stories on the air. It's not just them getting a role. Um, But it's going to be very hard. I think you're right that the fact that one day at a time is going to be perceived as a failure really hurts the community.
2: I'll tell you a solution that I think is going to ultimately happen. And it's not necessarily something that we want or like, but it's going to be, I think, the future of Hispanic programming. Uh, My wife said this to me we're going to live in a world one day where there are going to be no more verticals. It's not going to be a Hispanic site for Latinos. It's all (laughs) going to be one big sopa, right? (laughs) Where the next couple of shows that you see with Hispanics, it's going to be a Hispanic lead with a white or black or Asian co-lead. And then (laughs) kind of like Ugly Betty where it had its own Latino storyline, but It didn't necessarily affect the whole show with its Hispanic broad stroke, right? Brush stroke? Right. And it's going to be a combination of all diversities into one show where maybe Hispanics might have the upper hand in terms of plot lines or Mm -hmm. star actors Mm -hmm. or something Mm -hmm. along those lines because then it can be consumed and everyone can connect with those characters. So maybe... And, you know, these are questions we have to ask because we have to understand why this did not happen. Right. What are the particular questions that we need to ask to improve the situation as opposed to constantly Mm -hmm. being angry that we're not being represented?
3: Well, I think, I mean, there's value, really, there's value in both ways of looking at this. You know, there's value in having a family that's very specific, Latino, um, and Having that representation on television, and there's value in having two kick-ass female cops on Brooklyn Nine-Nine mm-hmm. that are both Latina, and, but don't their their stories and their character development is not about their culture. It's right. about they are in the precinct and their work, and they have their quirks, and they just exist because. Like you and I, we exist in the world, right? We don't spend our day going, I'm Latino, I'm Latino. <laughs> yeah, we're not right?
2: professional <laughs> Latinos, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
3: in everything we're doing. So, you know, it's the same. If you look at the success of Black Hollywood, you know, you can have um, a Black person be, be a lead in a show that has nothing to do with their race, or you can have a show as successful as Insecure or Atlanta you know that really speaks to the black experience in a very very specific way um, and that other people can find things to relate to about it Um, so i don't think it's either or you know um, i hope that there's going to be room for us to be able to tell our own specific special stories because i think that's the brilliance of one day at a time you know um, it worked hope- well on
2: Broadway where it, Lin-Manuel Miranda was able to tap into something universal within the yes. heights. Yeah, And I've always thought that that would have been a great TV show. Uh, I know they're trying to adapt it to a film right now. Right. I believe it's with either Warner Brothers or Universal Studios. And that's fine, but it's like a one and gone and we won't mm-hmm. see it afterwards. I think a TV mm-hmm. show would be great about... You know, Uznavi uh, and his Washington Heights. You know, trying to get back to the Dominican Republic with the lottery ticket. I think there's something right. there that he was able to do so well. So it's not that US Latino stories don't work. It's right. just that, and and this is the part that I have troubles with because I mean I'm not a screenwriter. You know, I, I don't know exactly what he did that maybe Gloria missed or maybe was ignored by the gatekeepers yeah
3: I I don't know that it's something that Gloria missed you know because when you watch that show that show has something for everyone I think it is a question of was it promoted as much as it should have been you know was there enough awareness created around it um, and then there's this issue that it, it was on this platform that, looks at things beyond the U.S. audience and the U.S. interest in a show. They right. do They do look at the international interest.
2: Bueno, Marielena Fernandez, TV reporter for New York Magazine and Vulture.com. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking a little bit about uh, One Day at a Time and its cancellation and sort of the, re- the bigger rep- repercussions uh, of what this means. So once again, thank you so much.
3: Thank you so much. My pleasure.
2: And before we head on to our interview with Concepción, it's time for a segment I like to call Jacked In. <laughs> Let's begin with the top movie news of the week. Esai Morales joins the DC Universe as villain Deathstroke. Denzel Washington to star in Warner Brothers cop thriller Little Things. Antonio Banderas has joined the Hitman's Bodyguard sequel with Salma Hayek. And watch Oscar Isaac in Netflix's new original film Triple Frontier starring Ben Affleck out now. In TV news, Rosario Dawson will voice Netflix's forthcoming animated series The Last Kids on Earth. Netflix will make Gabriel Garcia Marquez's Cien Años de Soledad into a TV series. And actor Susan Santiago will star as a series regular opposite Brooke Shields in the CW's drama pilot, Glamorous. Switching over to music, Jay Balvin and Selena Gomez have a new music video, I Can't Get Enough. The first ever Premios de Musica Urbana will air on Telemundo on Thursday, March 21st. Enrique Iglesias and John Z premiere Después Que Te Perdi music video, and CNCO and Carol G are among those who will perform at the 2019 Billboard Latin Music Awards. And in tech and social media news, Twitter made an in-app camera to compete with Instagram and Snapchat. Apple reportedly close to adding HBO, Showtime, and Stars to a future upcoming video service. Instagram rolls out option to pause all notifications, and all Spotify Premium subscribers will now get Hulu for free. If you haven't noticed yet, the New York Times has a brand new Latin X column called El Espace. It's courtesy of Dominican American Concepcion de Leon, a writer for the book section of the Times. We talk why she came up with the idea to pitch it to her editors, the importance of the column for her culture and community, and how she got hired at America's most prestigious newspaper. Concepcion De Leon, welcome to the Highly Relevant Podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: So, what exactly is El Space from the New York Times?
1: So, El Space is a column um, that I started last year, and essentially it's a space in which I... Usually it has... sort of a newsletter setup, and so Mm. it has a story up top that I either report um, or kind of write an essay based on um, issues that are occurring in the news during, like, that particular week or issues that are relevant to Latino communities that week. And so I write that, and then I suggest, you know, a group of articles that would also be interesting to Latino Mm -hmm. viewers—I mean, not Latino viewers, excuse me, Latino readers.
2: And so are you the editor? Are you the conceptual editor of what goes on it, or do people— pitch you things, and then you have to take that to another editor who then approves the topic that you're going to be writing about?
1: So I would say right now I'm the writer of it. So I I write the column. I, I select the stories that I want to recommend or the videos, whatever it might be. And then um, I have two top editors who I work with that um, then kind of look at it and tell me if there's anything that I need to tweak um, and do a lot more sort of line editing. But in terms of the, cur- the curation of it, that's all me.
2: What triggered the idea for LS Space to, to be created? Was it you that came up with the concept and pitched it to New York Times editors? Or did they approach you with it? And why was the timing right?
1: So I... It it was me that pitched it, um, and I I pitched it to... as a special project and I kind of, the the way that it came up was that we have a Spanish version of um, the Times called El Times and um, they have a newsletter and when they were kind of revamping their newsletter last year, I was one of the people that was kind of reading it and and giving sort of some comments on it and I read that and I was like, wow, it'd be so cool if we had something similar to this in the United States. I feel like the Spanish-speaking population in the U.S. is really neglected and Latinos as a whole um, but we sort of forget that the United States has the second largest population of Spanish speakers in the world, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and that's that's really significant. And so I felt like we were really ne- neglecting a huge population of people within the U.S. Because I should mention also that El Times is more so catered, like, to Latin America. So it's news that's really relevant in that region. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there were a lot of articles that we were publishing related to Latinos in the U.S. that, uh, that weren't necessarily being translated. And I, I felt like that was a hole that could be filled. And so I pitched in a space as a way to sort of directly speak to that audience, but also to kind of increase the number of articles that were, were translating into Spanish. And I should mention that, you know, kind of unbeknown to me at the time, I there was a sort of greater strategy in terms of reaching Latino audience, not Latino, excuse me, Spanish-speaking audiences. That is definitely a priority for the New York Times. And so I think it just so happened that I pitched this at a time when it was also um, becoming more of a, of a point of, of interest for the
2: Times as a whole. Got it. So the timing was was perfect. Now El Espacio, as I understand right. it, it's in English, not in Spanish. Correct.
1: Um, So it's, I write it in English, yeah, but it's translated every week and published in Spanish as well on our um, Spanish language vertical.
2: Did you show any data to have to convince anybody that this was the right move to make? Did you have to do like a whole research project, a PowerPoint or a (laughs) keynote presentation? Guys, let me educate you, please. Listen, (laughs) the data doesn't lie.
1: Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of excitement for it from the beginning, I think. But we did have to, you know, I had to submit a proposal and um, I worked with someone that uh, does like audience, um, audience development to sort of look for data to back up things that I sort of felt to be true anecdotally, mm-hmm. um, which is that there is a huge bilingual population in the U S that, you know, there is a particular interest in this kind of content. And so, yeah, I mean, for sure there was, there was research that went into it. It was, a, I think it took about six months to actually get it up and running. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so it wasn't, you know, from one day to the other, there, there was sort of a lot of research and stuff that went into it, but, but I would say that there was a lot of support and, and kind of just like excitement about it from the beginning.
2: That's great. You know, for me, um, as a reader of the New York Times for years, uh, and as a Latinx and as a bilingual bicultural person, I always wanted to read more Hispanic stories um, and, and hear from more Hispanic journalists that had a yeah. point of view. So, for example, in my particular case, I've always had an issue with Um, how certain, let's say, Latino movies that are coming out, like, for example, Coco, and there's a non-Hispanic critic writing about it. And I've always said, yeah, it'd be nice if a Latino got that same sort of, uh, you know, sort of look. I always thought that the New York Times saw Hispanics more as an afterthought um, in terms of stories because they're not valuable to the majority of the readership, which is mostly white or black. And I always felt that I was either A, invisible, uh, B, completely ignored, and that my voice or my life experience never really mattered. And by the way, this is coming from a guy that grew up in New York, uh, Mm -hmm. that didn't learn Spanish till he was 15, that is completely assimilated from birth, uh, and probably considers himself more American than Hispanic at some Um, points. And I mean, and I've been thinking about this for years. So, yeah. what do you think conflated everything together to create this time and moment where Ellis space can actually exist within the brand of the New York Times?
1: Yeah, I mean, I definitely think it's been a long time coming i I um and i and I don't want to sort of create the impression that I feel like Ellis space is all that's being done because I think that it's just it's a part of sort of a much bigger conversation you know we there there's this sort of I don't know if you've read all of the um the coverage about the Oscars and mm-hmm. Alfonso Cuarón's win, but it's significant, you know, that in the last, I think, six years, a Mexican director has won five out of six times, right. you know, and that's that's exciting, and I think, again, that's something that's a long time coming. Those are three directors that have been working, you know, in, in Hollywood and elsewhere for decades, and um, and so I think it's, it's sort of the same thing at the times and in other places where this has sort of been brewing for a long time, um, in terms of hiring more writers of color, hiring more Latino writers, um, so that they can bring those voices in because you just sort of don't know what you don't know, you know? And, um, and I think what you're saying about feeling underrepresented, feeling unseen is something that I've heard from a lot of people um, who are, who are reading El a space and, and are excited about it and feeling that their their stories are finally being represented. And I think the value of a space is that it is spe- like it, it is sort of specifically catered for a Latino community like mm-hmm. I think that we do stories about Latinos not enough I you know admittedly definitely not enough but we do stories about Latinos often that but we don't sort of get them in front of the right people we don't get mm. them to the right audiences um, because maybe the New York Times isn't viewed as a place where people might come for that um, and I think that that's something that is, that, that's kind of the whole that i think el espacio fills, mm-hmm. is sort of like being an inviting place where people can be like look we're here and we're we're sort of trying to produce more content and sort of um uh, make this make the new york times feel like a place where latinos belong um or at least that's what i'm trying to do i guess i should say and um and i think it just takes time you know it's tough um it's it, I, I don't i don't really see it as this like major shift over the last, like, year or two years. I see it as something that, like, has slowly been trudging forward Mm -hmm. over the last, like, decades, and finally it feels like um, something is happening, and hopefully that'll continue to grow, you know?
2: What is your cultural background? I'm Dominican. You're Dominican. You know, uh, it's interesting. How many Dominicans do you know work either in the New York Times or in major... Uh, outlets like the journal Do you have colleagues That are Dominican That work in the Mainstream um, Press
1: um, We We have some Um Sandra Garcia, I don't know if you're familiar with her work, but she's a reporter on our Express desk, which is a desk that does a lot of our breaking news coverage. She's really, really um, talented and has been here longer than I have, actually,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, though I'm not exactly sure um, exactly how long. I think it might it might be like three or four years. Um, so she's really great, a really talented person. And then we have... Um, I don't know of any other reporters, and I hope I'm not wrong about that, but there are definitely other people that are working across the building. Claudio um, Claudio Cabrera Mm -hmm. is um, an SEO specialist, and so he works um, on the SEO team to sort of try to get our stories into the right, in front of the right people. Um, So there are a few. There, you know, it's, Dominicans, I think, are a smaller, a minority of a minority, I think, you know, I think in in New York, there are a ton of Dominicans, but across the country, that's not necessarily true. And so I think that same with anything. It's just, you know, as as the number of Dominicans grow and as um, as more opportunities kind of um, arise for pe- that for Latinos to fill those roles, hopefully roles, excuse me, mm-hmm. hopefully. Um, there will be more Dominicans, but right now there there are a few
2: <laughs> now do you feel that I mean did you ever think that working at a New York Times for a Dominican writer uh, journalist such as yourself was a fantasy or, or was was there a sense of that this could be real if I just put in the work uh, because <laughs> no. there there's not there's really no data to support that it's an easy ride for a Hispanic to just go to the New York Times?
1: yeah. No, I mean, honestly, for me, every my entire career has been a dream. I, I think that, and literally, like, there, it's, there are things that I have, they are things that I've dreamed of, but never things that I, ex- I expected to come true. And mm. per, in particular, the times, you know, it just felt so distant. And um, I remember when I was maybe, like, 17 or 18, um I wrote this, like, satirical essay for school, and my teacher was reading it, or, or a writing tutor or something was reading it, and she was like, oh, like, this is so good. You should submit it to the Times. Oh, wow. Like, and at the Times, like, <laughs> and at the time, like, I didn't know anything about media. I didn't know how to sub- how to like pitch people. I didn't know how to submit anything. I don't even know. I, but I sent it to like someone at the Times. Of course, never heard back. Um, but since then, I think I was just like, oh, I'm not good enough for the Times because obviously I wasn't thinking like I'm 17 years old and, you know, <laughs> I need maybe I need some years in me before I'm able to write
0: mm-hmm. at, at the
1: level required to work at the Times. Um, but, you know, I would also, I've always been a, an admirer of the Times, and I've read a lot, I used to read a lot of their articles before I started here, and it just felt, I just think we have so many talented writers, and so I was like, wow, like, these are great writers, there's no way that, that you know, I'm going to get there, and if I do, then it's going to be in many, many years, so it's right. definitely, um, it was a surprise to me, and...
2: Um, how, did, how did you prepare for that? How did you prepare your writing to be at the level of the Times?
1: Oh, I don't know how to answer that, um... 'Cause I don't think that I did anything like active to prepare.
2: Got it. Know? You didn't go to like a I, like a writing school. You didn't have to go um, get a master's degree in that. You didn't have to take tutors. You didn't have to go into online writing uh, and and try and copy a particular structure. You didn't uh, hire, you know, tutors, maybe ex reporters from the Times that you didn't do any of that, right?
1: No, I didn't. <laughs> um, I didn't. You know, I was always a big reader, and I'm a big believer in, in reading as a form of um, of improving your writing. So I feel like I grew up with ha- with a really strong foundation foundation for writing because I was like a voracious reader. Like I would read like 10 books every two weeks, literally. Um, and so I think that's, that's a, lot a huge of books. part of it. <laughs> that's a lot of books. Yeah. That's a huge part of it. I went to, I honestly think one of the experiences that really kind of formed my writing was going to an advanced high school. So I went to Bard High School, early college in the city. And um, it's basically, you know, exactly what it sounds. It's an early college. So essentially you go in and you do two years of high school and then the last two years are college, mm. college classes, excuse me. And so um, you graduate with a high school diploma and an associate's degree. And what was incredible. really lovely about it was that, yeah, it was incredible and really a great experience. And I feel like, um, I mean, by the time I got to college, I was like, this cake, you know, because I have been so thoroughly prepared. Um, but yeah, you you know, we got to pick our classes. I took philosophy classes and sociology classes, things that high school students would not necessarily have access to. So I, I will say that, like, that wasn't an active thing that I was doing to prepare to work at the time. But I, I really kind of credit that for um, for, for forming me and, and kind of helping my, writer, my writing get to a place where I, you know, I can, I can write. For the times, um, and I don't. Wanna, I mean, I feel like I still have a lot of growth to do in terms of writing. I don't think I'm like the best writer in the world, um, but I. I definitely think those were um, those two things were things that i can think of that that really helped me more like stuff from when i was younger
2: Mm -hmm. i take a lot of
1: writing classes now after having started at the times um interesting to sort of continue to work on it yeah um Mm -hmm. but it's mostly like i take a lot of creative writing classes to do um to write i I mean at, at some point i'd like to write a novel so a lot of the writing classes that i take have to do more with plot and form and and working on those um on that discipline
2: how did you get into journalism
1: I, so when I first graduated, um, I was trying to, I wanted to be a book editor and so I was applying to all these book publishing companies and did not hear back from one. I mean, literally it was like putting my resume into a black hole and I was like, okay, well, I guess this isn't for me. You know, I need to kind of figure out something else to do. And I had been a Chinese major, um, in addition to a Spanish major. And so I was like, well, maybe I'll look for jobs that relate to my Chinese language skills. And so I found a job. Do you speak
2: Chinese fluently?
1: Oh, it's so funny that you mentioned that. Um, I – definitely not fluently, I, um, which is very embarrassing because, you know, like I said, it was my major. But, you know, after I graduated – that's like, what, seven, eight years ago maybe now? Uh-huh. Um, my math is terrible, but <laughs> I – after I graduated, I um, – I just haven't spoken it since then. And so very recently, actually, I started taking a Chinese class because I'm like, this is embarrassing. Like I need to get back into this. So I'm trying to build it up. But at the time and when I first graduated, I applied to work at a Chinese company and ended up becoming a consultant for them for uh, a couple of years and so I did that and it was interesting and it was cool to be able to use my you know my Chinese language skills but then I kind of just realized that I really wanted to go back into the book world or publishing in some capacity and so I applied for the Columbia publishing course I don't know if you're familiar with it no. but essentially it's one of those it's a six-week course and they it's split between book publishing and, and uh, media and magazine and, and journalism and um... So the first three weeks, we had a whole bunch of sort of professionals in the book industry come to talk to us. And it was like, you know, people that were editors and publicists and worked in the marketing department. And it was really interesting. But it kind of made me realize that the book publishing world in itself wasn't really for me um and then the media people people came and I was like yes like these are my people it was just much more um Mm. fast moving it was uh there was much more of a generation of ideas um with books they were like oh yeah it takes like a year and a half or more to work on this one book and I'm like I cannot work on one thing for that long um and so I just found the The media industry to be a lot more dynamic and that was really appealing to me. So that was, I would say was my entry into the industry. And then I did a couple of internships. Um, I ended up working at Glamour magazine for a couple of years. That was my first job in journalism. Um, And I was an editor there. I ended up by the time I left. I ended up uh, editing the work and money pages, mm-hmm. and which is essentially like you know stories about personal finance and career. Um, obviously, catered to like a woman to women because it was a women's magazine. And then um, once I left Glamour, that's when the opportunity to work at the Times came up. Um, and and yeah, and then I just like interviewed, and and here I am.
2: So you never worked for a Hispanic platform?
1: No, I didn't.
2: Is that is that something that you regret not doing or is that something that you'd like to eventually do or is that something you don't even think about?
1: No, I mean, I tried. I like um, pitched some Latino platforms. um, But I mean, at the time I, I was so new. I didn't again, I didn't know how to pitch. I didn't really know very much about the industry. And so I tried, but I wasn't, you know, the the particular um, platforms that I was pitching to weren't really receptive to it. Again, because I probably didn't know what I was doing and didn't know what I was pitching. So, um, but I, yeah, I mean, I would love to, I I mean, I'm happy at The Times now, so it's not like I'm looking to leave, but I'm certainly open to it. I think that um, reaching a Latino audience is really, really important to me. And often when I think about my work at The Times, I, and bummed sometimes that it's so separate from, like, my family. And I, I really think a lot about how to sort of build a bridge between my work life and my family life.
0: But yeah. Because those
1: feel so separate sometimes. Um, so, yeah, in response to your question, I I'd, I'd certainly have nothing against, like, nothing, I'm not opposed to it, and I'm open to it. But um, for right now, I'm chilling <laughs> at the time.
2: There is this sense that when you're a Hispanic, and you're working with him within the Anglo sort of media world um, yeah. that you're not allowed to almost carry your stories, the ones that you also follow and that you're very passionate about a particular song or Jay Balvin. And you want to you want everybody else to kind of share in that joy that you have for your culture. And when you're kind of either told no or there it's it's ignored. Mm-hmm. There's a certain sense of emptiness in you. And yeah. um, and, th- I, you know, I can totally empathize now. Um for you wh- why do you think there aren't enough latino journalists in mainstream media and why do you think there aren't enough latin x platforms like L.S. Space? why isn't this abundant everywhere
1: Um mm, I think that's a big question I think that in part it has to do with pipeline you know I don't think there's a lot of access or opportunity available to a lot of people um I know that even for me, like I said, when I first graduated college, I was applying and applying and I had no, um, no one got back to me. And it's because particularly when it comes to journalism and media, um, and I don't know if this is true of television as well, but my impression is that it is, it's so hard to get in your foot in the door if you don't know anyone or if you don't have any sort of, um, any sort of connections. Mm-hmm. And what I've, I've, I was only able to kind of move forward in the field once I knew the right people and had people that could kind of, uh, you know, advocate for me and put my name in the bag. And, and
2: so and you had I a rabbi. in front of
1: people, one person in particular that I think I owe all my jobs to, um, and has been really instrumental in that. But, but I think a lot of people don't have access to that, you know, and I've spoken to some young journalists, um, or I have in the past, who have kind of expressed interest in media and have talked to me about how to get into it. And I'm like, honestly, it's so hard if you don't know people, and know people that have power, right? Because So how do you do that um, then? Well, for me, it was I did the Columbia Publishing course. So um, the person that was able to help me a lot was the the director of the Columbia Publishing course, Shea Earhart, um, who, again, was the person who sort of sent me to the right interviews and and kind of um, helped me just, just help me get a seat at the table, you know, mm-hmm. or not even, I think a seat at the table is probably not the right phrase. Cause I don't, th- I don't think I have a seat at the table yet, but, um, but just help, you know, just help me get, get interviews essentially, like literally just get an interview, not even get a job, just get an interview, which mm-hmm. I think is so challenging. Um, so I think that was the way in for me. I think for other people, it can mean different things. You know, you can ask editors out for coffee, writers out for coffee that can give you advice there. I, I did some of that as well. Um, I think it can feel disheartening because that can take a really long time Um, because just because you have coffee with someone doesn't mean that they're going to give you a job. I had coffee with, you know, like at least 10 people before I started the course, the Columbia Publishing course, and it never, none of it ever led to anything, you know? I I think Um, that
2: one of the biggest problems is, for example, I I grew up in Queens. I'm not sure where you grew up and what neighborhood. Same Same thing? Okay. So I was born in Flushing, lived in Jackson Heights for many years, Uh, Moved to Woodside for a while. And the idea of working in Manhattan was just, you know, it it was the movies. It's not really meant for someone from Queens, from Jackson Heights. So at some point, your aspirations sort of are numbed out. And I'm trying to figure out where did you get the drive and the motivation uh, to stick to this and not, not, not. Some, some, a lot of Hispanics stay in their bubble because it's a comfort zone. And as soon as they have to confront challenges or rejection, uh, that's when everything discombobulates. Where do you get, is it from your parents constantly telling you that you could be better or that you're great, uh, believing in yourself? Not everybody does that. Where did you get your drive?
1: I, okay, well, so definitely from my, my dad, I, I was raised by my dad and he was incredibly demanding, I think, um, and really expected a lot from me when it came to school, when it came to academic success. Um, so I think that was a part of it. Um, and I think that's true of a lot of immigrants. I don't think that's, super unique to me, but I think a lot of immigrants that come to the U S expect a lot from their kids because they kind of put all of their, it's like putting all your eggs in one basket. You know, they're like, we made this journey. We sort of came to this new space so that you could have a better life. And so we expect the best from you. I think that's one part. The other part, um, I, I, I think that I, again, like, I think my high school really not only prepared me for, for a lot of things, for in terms of like getting my, um, my, my writing ability to a certain level, but I think also um, put me in proximity to a lot of people who didn't feel as limited as I did, and mm. who kind of opened my, my world view to a lot of different careers. So I come from a very working class family, and so I, I didn't have sort of, the idea that I could be a writer didn't even occur to me, you mm. know, as a possibility. Right. Um, until i met people that 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 did kind of that maybe had parents who were professionals i had parents that were accountants that had parents that like were doctors or teach or like did different things um and so that was that was part of what uh, kind of opened up my mind to that um but honestly like i feel like i didn't really think that it was possible until like I did it. And that was like five years ago. You so know? just do it. So <laughs> I always find it hard to give people advice about this because I think there's no clear path is, is one thing. Um, I think that for... I didn't get a master's degree, but I think often for people of color, master's degrees can be very, very helpful because they can give you access to spaces that you wouldn't otherwise have access to. You know, Um, I think that I I was able to do that through the course that I did. I think, you know, a master's degree is a way to do that Um, and also to give yourself the confidence that you to to sort of feel like you can
2: do it. Right. Backing Um, it up, the validation of that degree. Right,
0: exactly. Where no one yeah. can
2: say, "Well, you're not qualified enough." And I go, well, "What about that master's degree from Columbia?" <laughs>
0: exactly. Exactly. <laughs> thank you so much yeah. for
2: being a good role model and for taking the time out. I know you're really busy and sharing, um, you know, your 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 path to where you are now. No,
1: no problem. Thank you so much for thinking about me for this. Um, it was really great
2: to talk to you. And that's it for episode 108 of the Highly Relevant Podcast. I want to thank Maria Elena Fernandez and Concepcion De Leon for coming on the show, and I hope you guys enjoyed the conversations as well. If you like. To support the show, please spread the word on social media and pass the word around to all of your friends. You can reach me on Instagram at JackRico and Twitter at JackRicoOfficial. Remember, it's only through your support that our show can grow. I'm Jack Rico. See you next week on another episode of Highly Relevant.